Thoughts presented by Pre-Scouter, where we have short discussions on big ideas in healthcare. I'm Jeremy Schmier, and I'm joined by Dr. Ryan LaRanger. Today's topic is inspired by a recent conversation with one of our listeners whose family member has a condition called aortic stenosis, which occurs when one's aortic valve narrows and thus restricts proper blood flow. We certainly aren't cardiac surgeons, and this podcast should never be considered medical advice. However, we thought we could use the time today to share perspectives on innovation in cardiac treatments. So Ryan, what always puzzles me is that some people are born with heart conditions and live without complications for years or decades at a time, and other heart conditions present themselves spontaneously with little or no documented risk factors. What do you make of all this? Uh, so uh, there are actually two elements there. The first one is documented risk factors. And the other one is, uh, the asymptomatic congenital defect, right? So let, let's take each of those in part. There's a difference between having a risk factor that we're aware of and having some other risk factor that we aren't. It's, uh, genetics is uh, any there are not single risk factors only for many of these kinds of conditions. Instead, you can think of it as almost like a mosaic where um, someone may have uh, some genetic risk factor. We just may not know what it is. Um, at the same time, there may be some issue where uh, it's a combination of factors that are at a low level, but when combined, they turn into something major. And we're still sort of at the early stages of understanding some of these more complex genetic risk factors. That's point one, which is a very complicated way of saying, if someone does not present a known risk factor, it does not mean they don't have a risk factor. We just don't know what it is. That's the first bit. The second bit is sometimes people will have these risk factors uh, for heart disease or for other conditions, and nothing will present for a long time. If you think about it, the heart is designed to work no matter what, because any failure in the heart uh, is catastrophic and very rapidly catastrophic. And so many sort of longstanding heart problems can be in a certain degree masked because it's still able to perform its function until something really catastrophic has happened, right? You look at heart failure, uh, hypertrophy, you know, like all of these various conditions where it actually takes a great deal of damage before you start seeing a big impact. So let me ask you a question. So you mentioned it kind of works no matter what, and maybe this question is trivial in nature, but what makes it so resilient beyond the fact that it's essential for, for life? So the evolutionary biologist in me says that you've just answered your own question. Um, <laughs> it, it is its essentialness over you know, like years and years and years of evolution, which have made it um, present very few defects unless there's catastrophic failure. A way to think about this is sort of like with prey animals, right? Uh, if you have any mice for pets or if you have uh, chickens for pets or anything like that, uh, even if they have an injury or something pretty major, they won't present it, right? Because from sort of an evolutionary perspective, their um, uh, prey animals that show weakness are more likely to be killed when they're in a flock, et cetera, et cetera. This is all sort of a hand wavy answer, Um 
a more practical one is that uh, the heart falls very much under the auspices of organs whose function is extremely mechanical. And uh, these kinds of organs are not relying on, uh, so let's take an alternative example, right, where you think of, say, the liver or the kidney or the pancreas, right? The pancreas is a great one, where a great deal of what the pancreas is doing is molecular, right? You're depending on the production of insulin. It's making a bunch of other enzymes. It's a very sophisticated process that's hard to mimic just by, you know, making something that's pancreas shaped and squeezing it. The heart has at its heart, God, a very simple job, <laughs> right? Where uh, there's an electrical impulse, there's a bunch of very specialized heart tissue. It squeezes when it's supposed to squeeze, it unsqueezes when it's supposed to unsqueeze. Uh, when you have a strictly mechanical function like that, you're not going to see failure until there's a mechanical failure. Whereas with, say, liver failure, um, 95% sure I'm right in this. Like it's, you're going to turn yellow. Uh, you're going to have other problems and it's going to be a sliding scale for something like liver failure. Whereas with heart failure, it becomes either the mechanical system is managing or the mechanical system has failed. Understood. Yeah. That I, I like the, the parallels that, that you're drawing there, but for, you know, more of a treatment perspective, right? So you mentioned kind of the mechanics. And if you were to think about this, like a mechanic, right? Some of these conditions, there's the, you know, fixing the issue, there's the full replacement, I've heard of some groups that can 3d print heart valves, um, or harvest them from animals. What do you know about? This? Oh, man, uh, <laughs> there, there's a lot there. And a lot of it is good. Let me actually start because we're talking about, uh, you know, this is a sort of, this came from a particular place regarding aortic stenosis. So I would be remiss if I didn't sort of start by mentioning transcatheter aortic valve replacement. Uh, so one of the big issues with heart surgery or heart repair in general is getting to the heart is hard. It's a very, very, very major surgery, right? And so one thing that people have been working on, and a few groups have been really successful with this, is affecting uh, a valve replacement through a catheter. So instead of having to open the person up completely, it's you snake a catheter in, the surgery is done that way, old is removed, new one is put in, and then you can snake that back out. So I just wanted to mention that first because it's a very big deal. It's made a big impact on a lot of patients, particularly interestingly younger patients, um, because it's making, like I said before, there are degrees of damage to the heart, right? So you don't have just, oh God, it completely failed. We need to replace it right now. Um, valves can have a degree of failure and making it an easier surgery to do means it's easier to replace. And uh, just before I move on, does that broadly speaking make sense? Yeah, I I'm with you. It sounds like it in some ways it's a, a slow burn to some degree. So that, that's I've a fine way to put it where there's not really okay. a major issue until there's a major issue. Uh, now there are some advances in the imaging world to try and sort of find these earlier um, that are pretty exciting. Um, there's the Watchman heart implant, which is really fascinating. Uh, there are other imaging tools, which are excellent, uh, and just diagnostic tools to sort of try and measure how much flow you're getting. But uh, the other point that I want to make sure to bring up are, you know, how we're building these. 
and I would really hesitate to say there's a one size fits all best valve. One of the advantages, just speaking about pros and cons of the 3D printed models is that you can make them fit perfectly, which I mean, amazing, right? One of the challenges with 3D printing, uh, depending on if you're doing say a bioprinting or if you're uh, printing something more with a polymer is mechanical strength and high resolution smoothness can be an issue. Not always, but can be, uh, particularly with bioprinting. And by the way, we should do an entire one on that topic because I think it's fascinating. Um, when I'm saying bioprinting, what I'm meaning is 3D printing, but where the nozzle is producing um, cells which are suspended in an ECM matrix that is cross-linkable. So in other words, it's you're depositing cells in a 3D orientation and then it's doing its thing. Um, these are good. I'm not I, I, uh, it would be difficult to see them being used for aortic valve applications just because there's so much mechanical stress. They're also purely mechanical valves, uh, which are very, very functional and very good. They've been used for a while. Uh, there are also, and this gets back to what we were talking about a few episodes ago, I think, with uh, humanized pigs, right? So uh, it's there are pigs who've been engineered to display human antibodies as opposed to pig antibodies. Um, so that way, when there is a transplant, that transplant does not induce the xenotransplant immune response, which is very, very big, right? It used to be that when you had certain pig tissue transplants, you'd have to be on very serious immunosuppressants, which can cause, you know, long-term health problems, sort of obviously. Uh, but with the sort of humanized pig valves, one would be able to get that, you know, sort of mechanically very good tissue and where you need it to go uh, without as much immunosuppressants. Makes sense. And thank you for, for providing that, that context, um, both on some treatments and actually, yes, drawing parallels to, to, you know, a previous episode of ours. <laughs> I think we're, we're, we're going to leave it there for now. And, you know, for, for our listener who kind of brought this topic up, um, if you ever wanted to talk more about this, we can certainly make ourselves available. Um, again, not medical advice, but perspective from someone that I respect and think is a pretty smart individual. So um, we hope you enjoyed the conversation. Uh, if you're not subscribing already, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. And you can join us again next week where we'll be discussing nutritional supplements. Until then, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.